When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, it's David Duchovny. Do you ever feel like a failure? Trust me, I get it. Hell, I've spent my whole life almost feeling like a failure. It's appropriate though, because on Fail Better, my new podcast with Lemonada Media, exploring the world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives is the whole point. Each week I'll chat with artists, athletes, actors, and experts about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, I hope we can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out on May 7th, wherever you get your podcasts. It's The Late Show Poncho with Stephen Colbert. My guests tonight are Rock and Roll Hall of Famers who are here to celebrate the 40th anniversary of perhaps the greatest concert film of all time, Stop Making Sense. Welcome to The Late Show, Talking Heads, David Byrne, Jerry Harrison, Chris Franz, and Tina Weymouth. Listen, uh, thank you all. Thank you all for being here. I don't, I, I just, I'll just get straight to it. I don't even know how to be cool uh, about this because um, I, I want to ask you, uh, first off, um, what it was like to hit as a band because a lot of people work hard to find their sound, hoping that an audience is going to appreciate it. But you had this extraordinary explosion onto the scene in 1977. Your first album, Talking Head 77. What an incredible year to come out. The Clash, The Clash comes out that year. Elvis Costello, My Name is True. Sex Pistols, Never Mind the Bollocks, Here's the Sex Pistols. Meatloaf, Bad Out of Hell. Cheap Chick, Cheap Trick, Foreigner, Foreigner. Peter Gabriel, Peter Gabriel. And Talking Head 77. What, what was it like to fire on the scene? 
And I'll just say one more thing, and I know you eventually will be allowed to talk, but <laughs> I was, I, in my sophomore year of college, that summer before sophomore year, Speaking in Tongues comes out, that spring, Stop Making Sense comes out. There was no other band for that entire year for me or any of my friends. So th I am absolutely levitating talking to any of you right now. <laughs> These people know this story. I had tickets to see. I had tickets to see you at UVA in the fall of 1983 in October, and I had a paper due the next day for my Shakespeare class, and I did the paper instead. Tina, how big of a mistake did I make? I think you did great, Stephen, because I think all the kids were really high that night, <laughs> and and it would have been impossible to write your paper afterwards. Okay, good. Okay, good. Have any of you ever had an opportunity to go to a concert that then you didn't and you regret it for the rest of your life? Yes, yes. Um, a friend of mine, Steve Ferroni, who was the drummer in Tom Petty's band, had tickets for me, and there was a lot of traffic, and I went, well, I'll just see him next time. And it was, I think, maybe his last show. So I feel that was, I feel like, oh, my God, how did I miss that? Yeah. Well, um, well... Tell me what that first year was like when, you're, when your album hits in, in, in 1977. Did, did you feel that you had made an impression? We got we, gobbed a lot. What's gobbed mean? Dri driving around the station wagon to... Uh -huh. My parents' station wagon. <laughs> a, a, a Ford Country Squire with the wood on the side. The fake wood. Sure, so glamour. But, you know... We, <laughs> When our first album came out, we, we were so excited, and we, uh, we were very pleased by the critical reception we had. But we were still playing to, like, 50 people, maybe 100 people in most of the cities we went to in the station wagon. Uh, we, we would play shopping malls that were, like, empty shopping malls. <laughs> uh, we would play pizza parlors. You, you, remember, you remember so the show in, in Pittsburgh? Yeah, the, yeah, the pizza, yeah. Antoninos. We played the pizza parlor, and uh, <laughs> the opening act was a fire eater. <laughs> we did two sets, and so did he. But during our first set, he got drunk. <laughs> we're just like, oh, no, oh, no. This is not good. Yeah. I also remember we played a beefsteak Charlie's in Yonkers. <laughs> not, it's sure. not there anymore. Oh. oh the no. worst part about it were Jerry and I were dressed in the same outfits as the waiters. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so 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 you guys, uh, uh, so uh, David and Chris and Tina, you guys are all uh, students at Rhode Island School of Design, right? You're all all RISD. Yeah. How does the band come together? I mean, everybody, I assume, there has probably got a band. Like, there are art school students. Everybody's got a band. How did the three of you get together originally? Well, surprisingly, there weren't a whole lot of bands at RISD, which is why we formed one. I had this idea. We should form a band to entertain our friends. And I met David, and he was into that idea and some other friends joined in and we uh we were a cover band and the the sole purpose was to entertain our friends you know and how did where did that when did it develop beyond that i started writing some songs for for that band well who were you doing what covers were you doing well we did 
a whole eclectic mix. We did Smokey Robinson and the Miracles. We did the, the early Who, like I can't explain. We did the Velvet Underground. We did Paul Revere and the Raiders. <laughs> Are there recordings of those, you guys doing those covers? I wish. I, I, I heard that somebody has a recording that they made, but that person has not come forward. <laughs> Stephen, I was not in that band. You were not? No. Everybody who wasn't in that band stood in another corner of the room <laughs> because it was so loud. <laughs> Really? It was just so painful. <laughs> and you were an honest critic, and they appreciated that. <laughs> Jerry, you were with the Modern Lovers. Yes. Was this, was this, um, was this like the she's cracked, that part, or yeah, the, uh... exactly, she cracked, okay, yeah. Roadrunner. All oh, right, so why, why, why did you want to be part of this? Well, the Modern Lovers had broken up, and I was sort of in this limbo. I was actually, um, about, a, and just entering architecture school, having said, well, I don't think I'm going to be in a rock band. And then I met the Talking Heads, and they asked me to join. And uh, they actually allowed me to finish the first semester because I said, my parents will kill me if I don't, <laughs> if I can't go back. So, so anyway, so I joined in uh, January of 77. But we did a number of shows. And they braved, I had this house that I had rebuilt in Ipswich, Massachusetts, and we rehearsed in kind of just after a blizzard in this freezing cabin to go down and play in, at the Ratskeller in Boston and down at Lupo's in, uh, in Providence. And, and Tina, when did you join? If you weren't originally in the band, when did that change? Well, they really needed a bass player, and nobody would join them. <laughs> they asked Debbie Harry to sing with them, and she said, I already have a band, but you can buy me a drink. <laughs> So I just, I just loved them. I just thought, oh, God, these guys, they, they're so amazing, and they're so creative, and we had a chemistry. It was very special. And so I braved it, even though it wasn't the right thing to do, probably. <laughs> but I, but I, I thought, I'll just get them going, you know? Um, you guys... Uh, a rock and roll band, did you, were you, for lack of better words, were you partiers? Was it that rock and roll lifestyle? Uh, that would be yes. <laughs> <laughs> the chair would like to recognize the gentleman from uh, Talking Heads and ask him to elaborate on his answer. Oh, uh I probably shouldn't elaborate any further, but the thing was, we were really good at what they call maintaining, so nobody knew. Mm. We, or at least you didn't think anybody knew. <laughs> <laughs> that's, the, that's the trick of maintaining. Somebody said, the drummer, he's always smiling. And the, our, sound man, our sound man said, that's because he's full of drugs. <laughs> uh, unlike Joe over there, who is a fabulous Clean drummer. Clean as a whistle. Clean as a whistle. So, um, uh, David, how did you feel about the term art rock? Because people describe Talking Heads as art rock. We kind of were, but I, I, I sort of realized that it was not meant as a compliment. <laughs> what, do you, what do you think it was implying? It implied that we were like snooty elites in, uh, who didn't really mean what we were doing. It was just an art project, you know? 
Mm -hmm. uh, and then we were also called punk rockers, but um, we didn't feel like we liked a lot of those bands, but we didn't feel like we fit in with that genre either. Well, you guys were playing CBGBs. What was, what was it like to get into that? Was that a hard thing to break into at CBGBs? Was it like, did you, you have know, to know somebody? You know, it, uh, we were very fortunate. We, we arrived in New York the autumn of 74, right around this time of year. And uh, the first person I went to visit was uh, another RISD alum, a painter named Jamie Dalglish. Uh, David had been camping out in his loft on Bond Street. And, and Jamie said to me, Chris, you know, I know you, you're interested in music. There's this bar across the street where something's going on. I can tell something's going on. It's called CBGBs. You should check it out. So that night I went, you know, because I was, we were looking for a place that would be like the Cavern Club was to the Beatles or the hotel in Richmond outside of London was to the Stones, you know, a place where, like an incubator. And uh, I went, nobody was playing, nothing was happening. But there was, there was this one guy shooting pool, and he said to me in a very heavy Spanish accent, nothing going on tonight, man, but come back on the weekend, the Ramones will be here. So I thought, oh, cool, a, a Spanish band called the Ramones. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I went to see the Ramones, and it was unbelievable. Did you come too, David? I might have, I yeah. It, th this was in the early days when they would, they would stop in the middle of a song and argue with each other. <laughs> like what, over what the lyrics are or what people are playing? O over how they, how, uh, what they were playing, and sometimes, like, Dee Dee would say, no, Johnny, I don't want to play, I don't want to go down to the basement. <laughs> I want to play, I don't want to walk around with you. <laughs> you know, like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, they were, to us, they were like a performance art act that was really something else. And then came Patti Smith, and then came television, and then came Mink, wow. Mink DeVille, and just uh, all kinds of great bands. But your first tour was with the Ramones, right? Yes. Tina, what was that like to be the only girl with all these guys on tour? Europe, right? I didn't know any better. So <laughs> I just went along with it. You know, it was just great fun. And we got to go to all these museums. And Johnny would say, oh, you're going to see some art. That is so boring. And, and <laughs> but we thought it was great because all the pressure was off us. We were the opening act. Oh, sure. And so we, we would just get 45 minutes. Sometimes I would have to fight with Johnny to get the tuner because we, we shared a tuner between two bands. But, but um, yeah, it was, a, it was a really wonderful experience because people over there, the kids, they came, they didn't make any differentiation between what type of music you were playing. You could be the Ramones and then Talking Heads. And, and they could mix it all up. Sometimes we, we did other tours with Dire Straits. We did other tours with um, oh, what, XTC was one. And so, I mean, we, it, could, it all worked together. And the kids were just having such a good time. One time we played this place in Flanders called Le Vieux Saint-Job, which was a desanctified church. And, um, and the kids were pogoing so hard, and they were all drinking these 
popcorn size, like large size popcorn cups of beer, European beer, you know, and, and, and they're only 14 years old. <laughs> and they jump so hard. Do you remember that one? And they, and they, they, we just saw this dimple appear in the middle of the, in the middle of the crowd. And we thought, oh, what's going on there? And then, and then this, those kids were falling through the floor <laughs> into the basement, coming back out, crowding into the doors and pushing the new kids in. That's nice. That's a good concert. <laughs> you have to take a quick break, but stick around. We'll be right back with more Talking Heads, everybody. <laughs> We're talking heads, Tina Weymouth, Chris Franz, Jerry Harrison, and y'all, David Byrne. <laughs> Stop Making Sense, directed by the great Jonathan Demme, is coming up on its 40th anniversary, and it's it, A24 has re-released it. It's, it's in theaters now, been out for a month now. Um, David, how did this come about? The company that had the distribution rights before, their contract ran out and their rights... After 40 years, it just ran out. Yeah, it ran out and their <laughs> rights reverted to us. Uh, and... Did you guys was... get back together to watch it? Like, what, how did this come about where you're, you're out here, you know, essentially promoting it? Well, we then took advantage of the fact that we owned it and said, okay, is there a distribution company, a film company, that would like to put this out properly now? And luckily, A24 said, yes, we'd like to put it out. And in theaters, not just dump it back onto streaming, we'd like to really do a new sound mix and get a print from the negative and make it all look as good as it can go. Jerry, I understand you were involved in the remastering That's of the right. sound for this. What was that process like? Well, we actually remixed it more than remastering because nowadays there are these multi-channel speaker systems in, in theaters. Um, and so... It actually was more difficult than you would think because we had to find everything, and then things would be, you'd play it, and uh, it would go out of sync at some point. Um, but eventually we did find it. The negative, amazingly, was in uh, a warehouse in Kansas that MGM has, which had nothing to do with the film. So it was really good that we started early, and I worked with a wonderful mixer who worked on really the original album of of Stop Making Sense, E.T. Thorngren, and then we went back to the, actually the same film studio, which had been called uh, Warner Hollywood, and before that, Tadeo, and now The Lot. And so there was sort of a sort of symmetry going back to where we were in 84 when we mixed it. What, what, was, it, what was it like to see this film, to watch you guys perform 40 years later on an IMAX? Chris, you first. What, what was that? What were the emotions with that? Well... It's a beautiful movie, <laughs> and my wife is in it, and what a babe. I mean, <laughs> when I... When I... <laughs> and you have every... Well, when I look at it, I just think, oh, Chris, you did the right thing. <laughs> <laughs> There's an incredible group on stage. It's amazing. Bernie Worrell, um, Alex Weir. How did this group come together, David? I'm going to give that to, to Jerry. I think. Yeah, I, 
it, it started with, of course, the tour for Remain in Light, where we had played so many parts, we go, we can't quite tour and play all of this at the same time. And we actually had the opportunity, because we were playing in Central Park in a, a festival where we were in Canada, called in Mossport, near Toronto. We go, let's do an experiment, and let's try having a bigger band. And I had been kind of hanging around in New York, and I'd met Bernie, and I had produced um, Nona Hendrix, and I was hanging around with this guy, Busta Jones. And so one afternoon, I said, I'll go out and hire some people. And Adrian, who had played on the album, I called him and called Busta and, and Dolette and Bernie, and they all go, sure, we'll do this. And we found Steve. And I, I came back to the studio and went, we have the best band in the world. I can't believe this. <laughs> and then, then Adrian went off to join King Crimson. We found Alex Weir, sort of through Quincy Jones, I think. And Yes. You know, and uh, and then we just kept doing it. And we, were, we weren't sure we were going to continue it, but we, once we were on stage with the whole band, we go like, this is too much fun, too funky. we got to keep doing this. Now, I understand. I just found this out recently, and I can't believe I didn't know this. The Ed Sullivan building is familiar to y'all. What did you do here in this building? What did you record well, we, here? We, we recorded some of and mixed some of our most loved songs uh we did remain in light was you did the vocals and some some overdubs where in the building i just want to go build a small shrine it was it was (laughs) sigma sigma sound and it was on i think the eighth and ninth floor Mm -hmm. it was two floors and uh we did so we worked on remain in light we worked on speaking in tongues burning down the house you know and we worked on little creatures uh, true stories. True stories. Uh, and it's part of Naked here, too. Yep, mm-hmm. that's yep. right, some of Naked. Yep. And it, w- it was, you know, the Stones were here, the Beatles were here, so were we. we <laughs> were- <laughs> I'll, tell you, I'll tell you one quick story about sort of my devotion to Talking Heads. When I, so... You guys are the, the most dominant band for me when I'm in college. And I have the most time to listen to the most music. And my senior year, senior week, school's over. We haven't graduated yet. We all go to the Jersey Shore, me and some friends. And we stop in Philly and stay at a friend's of a friend's house. And we're listening to Talking Heads. And the parents of the kids who are friends of the friends whose house we're in goes, oh, you know, the burning down the house house is around here. And it's from the video where, like, the flames are projected on the outside of the house and your face is on the outside saying, watch out. That was right around the corner. So we just drove and sat in front of the house and looked at it. was just like a center hall colonial house. We were like, here we are. We're at the house. Yeah. Yeah. We got to take another little break here, uh, but don't go nowhere. It's Talking Heads. back with Talking Heads. Tina Weymouth, Jerry Harrison, David Byrne, and me, Chris France. And, and, and Stephen Colbert. Thank you, Tina. Now, I have zero interest in stirring the pot. But the band... 
That's my <laughs> question. You, 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 uh, you guys, over the last couple of decades, there's been some friction in the band, and I sincerely don't want to stir the pot. I'm just curious, is that all water under the bridge? Or do you still need to wear galoshes around each other? <laughs> I, I think, um, you know, any band that's been together a long time has had twists and turns and ups and downs. And we've all said things and we've all maybe done things that the others didn't approve of. But I think we love each other and we've made such great music together. And this movie, I mean, damn, this movie is so good that we, we all agreed we got to get together and protect our legacy, which is so great. Any possibility? <laughs> I, legally, I, I, I legally have to ask if there's any possibility of protecting your legacy by playing together again. I will point out, I will point out that there are guitars and keyboards and drums right over there. <laughs> you, you gotta admit, you gotta admit, it would be legendary right now if you got up there and played a song. It would be epic. That, was, that wasn't fair. <laughs> um, well, uh, I, I want to point out one thing. The, Stop Making Sense, there's kind of, there's, you can go and see it at a theater with amazing sound, and then you get into the detail of sound, and in IMAX, the picture, but it's a little bit steep for dancing. And then there are these places where people are, like, we, you, you show the picture and you get, it's almost like you need to go see it both places to totally understand how wonderful this new release is, because... It's so much fun to dance to, and then it's also so much fun to see, wow, I'm seeing things I've never seen before. I'm hearing more than I've ever heard before. Well, people are actually going to the theater and just getting up in the aisles and dancing. Like, yeah. It's, yeah. it's undeniable. Before we go, I just want to ask you one question, or this goes to anybody, but I'll start with you. What does it mean to stop making sense? What does that phrase mean? Stop making sense. To you, what does that mean? Oh, it was more about like uh, maybe talking to myself a little bit, saying, don't be so rational all the time. Maybe sometimes trust your instinct, trust your feelings, trust those kinds of things, and, and see what happens. We saw what happened. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for listening to The Late Show Pod Show with Stephen Colbert. Just one more thing. If you want to see more of me, come to The Late Show YouTube channel for more clips and exclusives.